If you have your Bible, join me in Luke chapter 2. We will be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. One of the great authors in history, by the world's definition, is William Shakespeare. He wrote in his famous play, Romeo and Juliet, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. I know one thing is absolutely true about that statement in regards to William Shakespeare. He never had to name children with his wife. Because if he did, he would know that there is a lot more to a name than what you think. So we have five children, and one of our deals in our children was I wanted to use Bible-esque names. So that was a goal of mine. Kara's goal was that we use unique names. So you put these two things together, and now every child became a challenge. It started off with Mariah, and that one actually ended up fairly easily it is Mariah Lee, Lee being my wife's middle name, and so she got that name, and then Mariah after Mount Mariah in Scripture. But it couldn't be Mount Mariah as in Scripture, M-O-R-I-A-H, because it needed to be more unique than that. So it's M-A-R-I-A-H. So now everyone thinks she's named after a famous singer and not after a mountain in the Bible. I really wanted Moriah so I could call her Mo, but Kara was having none of that, so we have Mariah. And then there was justice. So justice is one of the men mentioned. There's three different justice mentioned in Scripture. Paul stayed with a justice for a while. When Judas is no longer one of the disciples, there were two men who were chosen, and lots were cast to see who would take his place. Justice lost. But anyway, so that's where we got the name justice. Middle name is David. My middle name is David. Two Bible names there. This is good. Then... We had a girl and a boy, so Kara made this decision that she no longer wanted to know the gender of our children when they were coming. So now we always had to pick names for both genders. So we had Justice, Mariah, and now we've got coming another child. And Kara doesn't know I do, but part of the deal was I could find out if it was a boy or girl we were having, but I could not tell her. Now, I was naive, and I learned my lesson before the next set because I didn't make a deal with her that she could buy nothing for the child until the child was born since she did not know what we were having. Well, along the way, Kara became absolutely convinced that our third child was going to be a boy. So she decided that we were going to name him Titus Hudson, Hudson Taylor, the missionary. So it was going to be Titus Hudson, and that was it. Babe, we need to get a girl's name. No, it's going to be a boy. No, no, no. And I can't tell her, no, it's not. So we got to come up with a girl name. So it was Titus Hudson. That was all she was having. So she had pillows made. She bought hats. She had blankets, all with the name Titus on there. And the whole time I'm going to the moon, Alice. You know, and I'm just watching money fly out the window as she's buying stuff for Titus, knowing that Titus is not a Titus. And so all of a sudden the doctor... And Kara told the nurses that morning she was having a boy. So the nurse who's in there, Eden comes out. The nurse looks at the baby, realizes that ain't a boy. Looks at me. I go, I know. Looks at Kara. Kara's just oblivious because she's sure it's a boy. Looks at the doctor, nudges the doctor, and the doctor finally goes, oh, yeah, it's a girl. And Kara's just completely blown away. She has no idea. So we had not settled on a girl name. Now, we had talked about a couple of names. And so at the last minute, we decided on Eden. Now, spelled E-D-E-N. 
Eden, right? Because that's how you spell Eden. No, 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 it has to be more unique than that. So Edie's ice cream, I am convinced, is where this came from. We had to throw a Y in there. So we have E-D-Y-N, Eden, and because it's more unique. Elliot after Jim Elliot, so Eden Elliot. Now, Kara's pregnant with twins, and Kara goes, I don't want to know what they are. And I'm going, okay, but here's the deal. You cannot buy anything this time. And so she held to it. She bought nothing. But again, she is absolutely convinced we are having a boy and a girl. And she will not consider anything else. We're having a boy and a girl, babe. We're not doing that this time. We've got to pick names. So finally, we decide on Titus Hudson. We still had pillows, so why not? So we, we decide on Titus Hudson. And we decide on Karis Michael is going to be our girl name. So we have Titus Hudson and Karis Michael. Those are our two names. Karis is the Greek word for grace. So it is in the Bible. It's just not in the English Bible. So there we go. We got our names. Babe, we got to come up with another boy name and another girl name. Okay, all right. So we kind of go around and we came up with Silas Livingston, I think was the other boy name, you know. And, and I'm not really worried about this because I'm like, the kid's never going to learn how to spell it until he's like in fifth grade. But it's not a boy, so it doesn't matter. I know this, she doesn't. But I'm like, sure, that's a great name. So we have Silas Livingston, Titus Hudson, and then we have Karis Michael. We're not having two girls. Babe, we, we've got to come up with another girl. No, God's not giving us two girls. We've already got, we're getting at least one boy out of this. I'm not worried about it. Babe, we've got to come up with another girl name. And I'm trying to be judicious and not give away the fact it's two girls and we need another girl name. So we go through this process and we are getting nowhere. And then it's starting to get bizarre. And so then there are names being thrown out there. And I'm like, babe, I'm not a hippie. I don't live in a teepee. I'm not using that name. That ain't happening. And she's just throwing out these really bizarre names. And I'm going, no, no, no. And so I go through this list of a thousand baby names. And like at 978, there's a name. And I'm going, well, and I've thrown out every Bible name, and they're so bizarre. I'm like, well, let's just kind of, you know, reach out a little bit. So I'm throwing out good godly names, like Remington, the rifle. You know, that's a good godly name. Peyton, Peyton Manning. I'm like, this is a good godly name. You know, so I'm throwing out names. I'm gaining no ground. And so finally, 978 on the list. And I'm going, I got an idea. Let's name, if it's another girl, let's name her after Tyndall, the individual who wrote the Bible or helped translate it in English, William Tyndall. No, that wasn't it at all. I just like the name. And, and so we come down to the list, and there is Tinsley. So we kind of went back and forth, and she wanted to change it to Tinley, and I didn't like Tinsley, so, or Tinley, so we ended up with Tinsley. Eden calls her Twinsley, so that's kind of cute. And so we ended up with Tinsley Reese. Now you say, where did you get Reese from? Miss Reese is the Abeka video Bible teacher for kindergartners. And so everyone who has ever done kindergarten in Abeka video knows Miss Reese. So she's a great Bible scholar. So that's where Reese came from. So we have Tinsley Reese. And I'm just telling you, if you haven't been through this, and some of you have, so you're laughing, and the rest of you are going, I don't get it. Oh, you will. And it's painful, let me just tell you. When you go through getting names, there's much more that goes into it than you think. Because every time you throw out a name, it conjures up a reputation. So that if you throw out a name, you go, oh yeah, I went to school with a person by that name. And I'm not about to throw out names here because I'm going to get myself in trouble. But, but you say, I went to a school with somebody named that. And yeah, I don't want to name my kid that. And then it's, oh yeah, 
I had a name I wanted to use. It was a good Bible name. And I knew a kid. I call him the legend. I mean, he's a great kid. I'm like, let's use that name. It's a perfect name. Kara's like, no, I got another person I knew by the same name. I, we can't use that name. You know, so it's just back and forth on me. Back and forth. Because every name carries a weight with it. I want us over the next few weeks to look in Scripture and to look at the names given to Jesus Christ, to the names given to our Savior. We celebrate Christmas and we recognize the importance of the birth of Christ, but I want us to look at the names given that give the weight to who Jesus really was. We start here in Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. We're going to come back to him in a minute. That all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, and we now have the first name given from heaven for this child, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The first name I want us to look at is Savior Christ the Lord. To understand the weight of this name, we have to put it in context. As this is representing the time, and this passage is written years later, but talking back about the event of the birth of Christ, we know it is at the time of the turning of time, from B.C. to A.D. It's at this time in history. We know who the emperor is. It is Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus came on the scene and reigned uh, roughly 20, 25 years before Christ's birth. Previous to him was Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, as emperor, goes through and conquers the world. As he went in and he began to conquer the world, he set himself up in a position of extreme power physically. Because of the victories he had won, he knew he had great military might. But winning the battle and maintaining control were two different things. He was wise enough from a worldly point of view to understand this. So he began to use the superstitions of the people, the mindset of those that he was conquering, to help them see who he was and to establish himself not only as the emperor, but also as their god. And in doing so, it gave him such power that when people looked to him, it was not as if just he was this political figure. It was not as just he was a military figure, but he was also a deity. So that people dared not rebel against him. 
And so the term that often began to be used of Julius Caesar was that of Savior. Savior represents a deliverer. He was the one who came in and delivered the people from the enemy that was without. So anytime an invasion would be attempted, anytime someone would try to come in and conquer, Caesar would be the savior. He would send in his army, he would deliver the people from the outside force, and he would protect them. And so not only was he their military savior, but he became, in their mind, this deity who was a savior who would deliver them from all outside forces. Well, this did not stop with Julius Caesar. When he passes away, then Gaius Augustus comes on the scene. He is now Caesar Augustus, and he makes himself into very similarly the same type role. In fact, in order to lift themselves up, both of these men would put statues of themselves in all of the cities throughout the realm. And as they would put these statues up, they would often go into the temple of whatever god or goddess was in that area, and they would put their own statue in there. In fact, one historical source tells us that the word Savior was used in connection with Julius Caesar. In addition to these remarkable privileges, they named him father of his country. They stamped his title on the coinage. They voted to celebrate his birthday by public sacrifice. They ordered that he should have a statue in the cities and in all temples of Rome. And they set up two statues, one representing him as the Savior of the citizens and the other as the deliverer of the city from siege. He would then be placed these crowns on the statue that were representative of his ability to, excuse me, save and deliver. As the people looked to Julius Caesar and now to Caesar Augustus, they looked to them to be the one who was their savior from any outside invasion, any outside force. And the angels come, and they fill the glories of heaven, and they shine round about them to the point where the shepherds begin to tremble. They're in fear of their life. They're afraid they're going to die. And the angel says, whoa, whoa, calm, 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 calm down. It's okay. Don't be afraid. I am here with good tidings of great joy. I have the greatest news that has ever happened. Oftentimes, as a city had gone through battle and it had been conquered, Caesar would send in almost a parade to let them know, or he himself would enter in to declare, look, there's no more need to fear. Your Savior has arrived. Jesus didn't have earthly trumpeters. He has the host of heaven fill the skies to declare your Savior is here. Your deliverer, all the outside forces, all the enemy that could come in, anyone who could attempt to put you in harm's way has to stand down, has to kneel. They cannot come against your Savior. You see, this babe that's over in a manger in Bethlehem, he's no ordinary baby. He's the Savior. He's the one. He will deliver from all of these problems. There is nothing about him that will allow any enemy to come in. You must recognize the great power that he has. And then the angels go on. And they declare not only is he Savior, but there in verse 11, which is Christ the Lord. 
That word Christ is the word where we get Messiah from. So here he is. He is the deliverer, but he is the Messiah. The Messiah was the anointed one. As there was a transition from one ruler to the next, oftentimes there were battles that ensued. There was a power struggle that would come on the scene. But the emperor who ruled wisely would have one in line who was anointed and ready to take over when he passed away. For Augustus, he actually had Tiberius who was waiting. He was not his direct descendant. In fact, many say he was adopted from, I believe it was Augustus' third wife. And he was an adopted child that he put in place to be the anointed one. The one who would come and rule next. So when the angels declare, you've got this deliverer who all outside enemies cannot come against. Inside enemies can't come against him either. Because he's the anointed one. He is the one that God in all of his power and might has declared he's the Messiah. To the Jews, the term Messiah had all kind of meanings. They had been looking for this Messiah for generations. They knew about him, they heard about him, they learned about him. It was a promise from God and they longed for it. But to the Roman mind, it had a different meaning. To the Roman mind, it represented an authority and a power that was appointed. It was given, and it couldn't be taken away. So you have this great deliverer who's now been anointed. He has anointed the Messiah, the King of kings. He is the one who will rule. He is anointed as the one who will become the great high priest in all the minds of the Jews. He is the one. You put these statues up, like you can make... Caesar a god? No, 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 you don't understand. You can try, but he is no god. But this baby, the god of all eternity, has become flesh, and he is dwelling among you. This baby is Christ, and he is Christ the Lord. The word Lord there is often used throughout Scripture, and it is used really about 700 times, and a little over 600 of them, it is translated to be exactly this phrase, Lord. Sometimes it is referred to as Sir or Master. The word Lord here represents, this is not necessarily a deity word, but it is a rulership word. So he is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he is the Savior, he is the Deliverer, but he is Lord, he is the master. He has control and he has authority. As Lord and master now, he comes and he has the right to rule over you and the right to decide. In that, there is a representation now that this baby is going to be not just the one who saves and delivers you. He's not just the anointed one, but he is the one who is the master of all things. So though the word itself is not necessarily a deity term, by definition and placement next to Messiah, it becomes the one who has the right to decide. Here's a beautiful picture. As you lived in the Roman Empire, you would come in and you had certain freedoms especially if you were a citizen of Rome, as we learn from Paul later on. But there were certain freedoms there, and especially during the time of Augustus, he tried to change a little bit of the way he was seen. 
He did not want to be seen as this extreme dictator, though he was. He wanted to be seen as the deliverer. He wanted to be seen as the anointed one. But he also wanted to be seen as the ruler of a democratic people in which there was a council, a senate, in which there was input, in which man had some choices and had some freedom, but ultimately they all submitted to the master. Here is this baby who is the great deliverer from any outside force. He is the anointed one. This is one we've talked about for generations. He is the one that God has appointed to be king of kings. But he is also Lord. He has the power. He is the master. He is the one who is in control. Oftentimes, today, people will use the phrase Lord when referring to Jesus Christ as a term necessary for salvation. Meaning that you have to make Jesus the Lord of your life in order to be saved. That's not at all what's implied here. What's stated here is he is Lord. Period. And he is the deliverer. He is the anointed one. And the reason he can be the deliverer, the reason he is the anointed one, is because he is the master. You don't have to come to him and make him master. He already is. Caesar Augustus was so powerful, no one dared lift their hand against him. Jesus will be far more powerful than this earthly king that you have. You give so much credence, people. You're giving so much power to Caesar Augustus. He is nothing compared to this Lord. And as the angels declare this, and as the shepherds hear it, their minds were flooded with pictures. I have no doubts that in their mind, royalty and the aspects of all that are included in that flooded their mind. But this Savior, this Christ, this Lord, would never during this life show those royal characteristics. But make no mistake, it's exactly who he is. And at the moment of his birth, it was declared, and it is the name that would begin to define who he is. But it doesn't stop there. If you would, let's look down a little bit further. Continue reading there in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude and heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all that they heard, it wondered at those things things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherd returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Now, now at this moment, just take that in for a second before we move on. They saw a baby. That's what they saw. They, they, they saw a baby. I, I joke all the time with Kara. There's seven and a half billion proof that this whole baby thing works. There's people everywhere. There's a lot of babies that have been born. 
And when you looked at this baby, he was a baby. That's it. Nothing special. There was no glowing halo around his head, regardless of what manger scene you've seen. He was a baby. But yet when the shepherds go away, they are blown away by what they've seen. The message that this is the Savior, Christ the Lord. And when they saw this baby, he was just a baby. But the message was so true that they glorified and they told everybody. And all these people in Bethlehem heard about it and they wondered at what they were saying. And Mary's just soaking it all in. Just going, I don't know that I completely understand all this. That she'd gotten a message already from God. This is a miraculous moment to these men that changed their lives. Verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished from the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus. Now, to you and I, the name has so much meaning. But the truth is, this is the Hebrew name Joshua. So when you go back into the Old Testament and you read of Moses and you read of Joshua who takes over and leads the children into the promised land, you have that name in Greek now being given to Jesus. And to you and I, we know all that it means. But in that day and age, the name Jesus was a name that really culturally went back a lot to Joshua. Continue reading, if you will. Which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of our purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. At this moment, Mary and Joseph recognize the name that this child needs is not our family name. They didn't have a lot of debate and a lot of arguing. They didn't have to figure the name out. They didn't have to go through a thousand name list. The angel had told them, you name this child Jesus. And Jesus simply means Jehovah saves. We, at this moment in history, finally have our Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, and His name is Jehovah, the covenant or powerful God who makes promises that he never breaks, saves. And here is how he saves. Take your Bible, turn over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we, we got to read it. In Acts chapter 4, you see how much power is in this name. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And you're here in Acts chapter 4. Join me in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done unto the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, now lest you be confused, the one of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of the builders. It was cast aside, but he has become the head of the corner. Verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be 
saved. There is one name that saves, and it is Jesus, because Jehovah saves. From his birth, he was declared the Savior, the one that was anointed, the one that is the Lord. He is the one that Jehovah has sent to save. But I want to look at one more name real quickly, and then we'll tie all of this together. Join me, if you will, over in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1. Now, this is not at the beginning of Jesus' life, though John 1 gives us some information there about the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. But look, if you will, in verse 29 of John chapter 1. Right as Christ's earthly ministry is beginning... John the Baptist says, the next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now you go, well, Pastor, I, I know that. Why is that so special? Here is John, the revered preacher of his day, the mighty man who's in the wilderness, the man who thunders when he speaks. And the way he introduces him, the way he declares that moment when he sees Jesus coming for the first time, his cousin is the Lamb of God, the one that takes away the sin of the world. You see, we have a deliverer, and we have the one that God has sent. He is Jehovah who saves. But what you have to understand, everyone, as you listen, look, don't forget this, don't miss this. This man that you see coming, all of the sacrifices, all of the time in the temple, all that our nation has been built upon religiously is wrapped up in that man. He's the one. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the deliverer. He will set us free. He is the one that saves. And He saves us for all of eternity. And how does He do it? He takes away the sin of the world. You, you go, well, Pastor, we know this. I know, I know. But that's the problem. We know it. And familiarity breeds contempt. And we forget that as we celebrate and, and we take time in our calendar year and we put aside a day for Christmas and we decorate for it and we buy gifts to celebrate this time, that the reason we celebrate this is because we do have a Savior. And He is the Savior who has come. He is anointed of God. He is God. And He saves us because He takes away our sin. There was no emperor who could ever do that. People would worship them. They would recognize their earthly power. They would honor them. They made a decree that on their birthday you had to give sacrifices to them. They had no power to deal with sin. But this Jesus, he just takes away the sin of the world. Do you recognize that Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin? Hebrews 17, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. It's paid for once for all the penalty of my sin. We say, what is that penalty? That penalty is death and hell. And it's done. It's paid for. You want to celebrate Christmas? Recognize that because of Jesus Christ, because of trusting him as my Savior, I'm not going to hell. I got to tell you, we recognize that salvation is the gift of God. But there is nothing you can give me that compares to that. 
if I were just saved from that, that would be incredible. But I'm not just saved from that. I am saved from the penalty of sin. But I am saved to heaven. And all the glory that heaven represents. But when I recognize what I deserve and what Jesus saved me from, man, Christmas has value now. All of a sudden, this is not about straw in a manger. This is about the actual Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, the Lamb of God, Jesus. Jesus saves from the penalty of sin. Jesus saves from the power of sin. Romans 6, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I don't have to live under the power of sin. We live in a day and age in which people all over the world, Christians included, are living in bondage under the power of sin. We live in a day and age in which it's accepted. It's okay. And we take the aspect of Scripture in which Paul says, look, there is a sin that does so easily beset. And there are. There are sins that each of us, they're different, but we all have proclivities to fall into. And we recognize them, but let's not forget that this deliverer was not a weak deliverer. He can deliver from everything. And so the Savior delivers us not just from hell, but from the power of sin in our life. We will never be perfect, and everybody knows that. And it doesn't matter how long you go to church. It doesn't matter how long you've known the Lord or your Savior. You're going to have a struggle in your life with sin. But I don't have to live under the power of sin. I can be freed. I can have victory over sin in my life. It, it doesn't mean that there won't be struggles there. But it means I don't have to lose the fight all the time. But Jesus not only saves from the power of sin, but he also saved us from the presence of sin. In Revelation 21, verse 27, it says, And there shall in no wise enter into it any that is into heaven, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. When we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the Bible tells us. And the day will come when this life is over and the presence of sin will be gone. And those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior will enter into the glories of heaven because our name has been written down. It's not because of anything I've done. It's not because I deserve it. It's because unto us is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. His name is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And He will deliver me from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. But I have to come to him. And I have to accept that gift of salvation. Amen. Now this morning, I don't doubt that every single person in this room knows the name Jesus. But my desire is that you wouldn't just know, 
but that you will have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth. Confession is made unto salvation. And there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? If not, you can do it this morning. You can come. We will get somebody to take you into another room and to take a Bible and show you. And look, I I get it. If you're not used to coming to church, it may be a little awkward to to come into church service. That's okay. After the service, I'll be in the Welcome Center. There'll be a bunch of people back there. Come get my attention. We'll get somebody to take you into another room and show you how you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. There is no shame in that. It is the great privilege of our lifetime to know our Savior. And you can know that. For the rest here today, you may have been saved for a year. You may have been saved for 50, 60, 70 years. But never let Jesus become less than the Savior to you. You've heard the message. Now I hope you'll respond to it. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, now's the time to bow your head and ask Him to save you. In John 6:37, Jesus tells us that He will not cast out anyone who calls upon Him. I hope that you will call on Him today. If you need help spiritually, we'd love to be of service to you. Leave us a message, would you? At hbcga.org or 770-974-9091. Our service times are 1045 on Sunday morning. 9.30 for Sunday school, 5 o'clock for the evening service, and then 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Our services are warm and welcoming, and you will feel right at home. Come and visit us here at Harvest, and call on us if you need us. God bless you.